Welcome to Biota.org Conversations. Today we've got more guests than ever before and a living, breathing scientist to boot. The question that we're going to be discussing today is whether artificial life could or can explain the Cambrian explosion. And I'm very pleased today to have the privilege of talking with Roy Plotnick. Roy, for people not familiar with your work, uh, both paleobiological and artificial life related, can you please give some background to that? Okay, I'm a paleontologist by training and background. Um, I tend to be very eclectic in my interests. I've long been interested in the implications of um, methods derived from other fields into paleontology. Uh, I've worked on fractals, on uh, nonlinear dynamics. I've been interested in computer modeling in the earth sciences, um, developed various techniques and methods for that. Uh, very recently, I've become very interested in uh, looking at uh, chemoreception, uh, how organisms detect chemicals in the environment, and how that may have changed over the Cambrian Precambrian boundary in that period of time. Again, doing computer models to, to look at how organisms uh, detect chemicals in the environment, how that may have actually that ability may have evolved over that period of time. We're also joined by John P. Daigle, who has previously appeared in a Biota.org interview, but this is your first conversation, John. Since your interview, what, what has gone on with ALS and your own development in artificial life? Well, ALS is, is sort of semi-permanently on hold while I uh, finish my master's degree, um, mostly because uh, it's just not possible. I, I've kind of come to the conclusion that it's not possible uh, within the framework of Java to actually explore evolution and to um, develop uh, a, a truly evolutionary or emergent system. And I could be wrong about this, but it, it's just the feeling that I get. And what, what gives you this feeling? The language has to be able to, to write back to itself. Uh, the, the more you study things like the relationship between um, amino acids and nucleic acids, and you, and you start looking at how things actually work, um, in terms of the, the mechanisms that have to be present in order for systems to evolve and to generate truly novel behavior that you haven't previously considered or that's not in system. You know, they have to develop this out-system behavior like, hey, let's all suddenly start uh, uh, using oxygen, right? Um, it, you need to have a language that's a lot more flexible or that, that you need to have, you need to build a system that allows the system to be self-constructing. And it, uh, that's just not what Java's built for. And we, we have the benefit of having Gerald de Jong on the podcast as well, who is Java expert extraordinaire. Gerald, what's your thinking with regards to John's critique? Oh, I always enjoy hearing this, uh, this kind of critique because it sounds so definite. It's amazing. Uh, at the same time, my, uh, my work has been, of course, uh, experimenting with evolution within Java. So... Am I a counterexample, or is my work not experimentation with evolution? Oh, no, no, it's certainly experimenting. You're certainly experimenting with evolution, and, and I think I, I, I may have your screensaver, if, uh, if, if I'm correct. Um, but it's not, it, there's not the potential there for uh, creatures to suddenly learn to fly. Or not even suddenly, but even to eventually, to develop that, that capability, or to differentiate into... Uh, into uh, new things with new goals, and that's that's kind of what I'm what I'm thinking. You know, the, the basic goal is to reproduce, but there's so many uh, sub goals, and it just doesn't. It seems like to build a system that's sufficiently complex would just be incredibly difficult, uh, if not impossible. 
I think I think it depends on what you're trying to evolve. I mean, if you look at uh, something like uh, Tierra, uh, that's an example of of um, of evolution happening at the uh, like um, the level of code itself. And with one one piece of code, uh, like bombing another piece of code with zeros. So this is a you know this is a core war sort of scenario, very natural to the computer environment, uh, and uh, you know that kind of thing could not be easily put together. But that's just one uh, one sort of level of evolution. That's like the, from the primordial soup to the first things that move. We also have Dave Kerr with us, who has has come. I, I think when we last talked, Dave, we referred to your stuff as intelligent design, because you take a higher level approach. What has changed since we last talked to you in the Conversations podcast? I've been working more on environmental type work as opposed to strict artificial life. In regards to that last question, I'm more of an optimist. I think it's possible, maybe not with Java, because I'm not too familiar with Java, but I'm always of the belief that you could create a system, and in that system you could have evolution take place even if the language itself wasn't evolving. Now, returning to the topic of the podcast, in terms of kind of super-evolution, the Cambrian explosion, is it something that can be explained or simulated or discussed even in the context of artificial life? Roy, what is, what is your take on the, the Cambrian explosion and whether artificial life can explain it or not? I'm not sure artificial life can explain it. I think it's going to be a tool. Um, we have to, again, uh, when you look at the complexity of things that we have, we make models. And models are simplistic, more simplistic. Artificial life, at least as what I've seen of it, is, is far more simplistic. Uh, has a number of what I hate to use the word naive, but naive assumptions about the way the evolutionary process works. But I think in terms of getting a heuristic understanding of what's going on, uh, I think it's going to be an important tool. The matter is getting artificial life models that more closely resemble what we actually think is going on. Can we explore this idea of naivety a little bit? What more would you want to see in order to, to lose this naivety? Well, one of the things, for example, that, um, again, I'm a little, as I said earlier, I was a little out of date on, on what artificial life has been doing, but um, artificial life models I've seen have been very self-contained in the sense that the physical environment is fixed, and there's no interaction with the physical environment and with the uh, biotic environment. And what we see when we look at the Cambrian expansion or explosion uh, and the periods right before and right afterwards is, is a really intimate relationship between the physical environment, changes in the physical environment, and changes in biota. Changes in um, The Cambrian expansion starts not too long after major glaciation. There are major changes in ocean chemistry that go on, um, changes in global oxygen levels. And at the same time, when life comes along, it's going to change, for example, how uh, biomass is distributed in the oceans. So there's a lot of interactions, not just the biological world by itself, but the biological world and the physical world. The naivety exists both in the uh, qualities of the environment and the environment's effects on the life, but also the actual interlife models itself. John, you've, you've had some discussion with regards to this. What's your thinking on these two components that need to be added to artificial life? It, I don't know if it's so much of a naivete. I mean, I, I think everybody... I remember in the last podcast, Gerald was saying that he really wanted to have his uh, the things interact with each other. And I think that, you know, we all realize that these kinds of interactions have to happen. Um, but when you start actually looking at the complexity of, of the model that you have to generate 
um, it's not so much a naivete as we're just running up against the you know the very outer limits of processing power. If you start wanting to really model an environment and then the creatures within the environment, and then you also want to model the uh, interactions within the creatures uh, that would lead them to, to to evolve, you know, this is you're starting to eat cycles. Um, do you think that there's actually the question, Roy, or do you think the actual modeling methods need to change in some way? I, I can I can't address the modeling methods. Uh, that's out of my purview. But um, I think part of it needs to be looked at is exactly what it is you're trying to model that might be relative to the the Cambrian explosion. Um, again, we have yeah, as, as the previous uh, was mentioned, there's there's a number of things. There's both uh, genetic changes occurring within the organisms themselves, plus there are interactions among the organisms. Uh, current thinking about the explosion is that it's very much um, involved with uh, interactions at various uh, hierarchical levels, uh, that there are a lot of interactions going on between the biota and the physical environment, that the physical environment and the uh, biota are creating uh, each other's, uh, controlling each other, and that this is driving what's going on internally. Uh, again, in any kind of modeling, you're going to be making various simplifications. I don't think we're going to be able to make a one-to-one uh, given the computational limits uh, model, but, but at least to understand some of the major uh, things that are going on, that's what any model is going to do for you. So Dave, you've taken a higher level view, but you also have included environmental feedback components. What's your thinking in this? Well, I, I agree that environment is a very, very important factor, and that uh, that's part of my goal in my work is to show that and to create an environment was has been my focus versus creating actual artificial life because the environment is really interesting to me how it can affect things like just having water or land or various temperatures of things and and the water water flows itself changing the movements of the things in the environment the artificial life what's your thinking on this Gerald yeah, my my biggest problem with it is I don't think the competition is fair because um, evolution happened with on the basis of a massively parallel uh, system of atoms, and all we have is this sort of uh, uh, you know simple computing mechanism that that goes sort of serially. So the, the competition is just not fair. We're not going to be able to simulate anything that that is sufficiently complex to explain something like the Cambrian explosion. What's fascinating, I think, in what Roy said is the idea that we need to go back almost to first principles and start looking at what we're trying to to model and look at the algorithms associated with that. I, I think that one question is, what are we trying to what are we trying to say when we say we want to explain the Cambrian explosion? Because I think there's an implicit assumption there that we're borrowing from creationism that. The Cambrian explosion is something is, is a grand mystery that needs to be explained, and I, I don't know that from a from a paleontological standpoint if that, that's actually true. You know, I mean, I think these sudden shifts are are to to a degree common when massive environmental changes happen. You you see, you know, responses in the biota that are also uh, massive changes, but we could do examinations at a simpler level where we say. Um, we're trying to examine a certain kind of emergent system that, that, that contains a feedback loop and an ability to bootstrap itself to higher levels of complexity. And if we do this, if we can find some sort of minimum language or minimum set 
of instructions that allows for this kind of system, do we see these same kinds of breaks? You know, do we see these same kinds of um, of, of sudden changes in uh, the nature of the organisms or the nature of the of the? Uh, Let me jump in here if I can, and I just want to you know make the word explosion is a lot of us don't like it for various reasons because it implies this all happens overnight and we're really talking about a period of 20 million years and in one reason in one way of looking at it and actually twice that long in other ways of looking at it uh, the first true multicellular organisms appear about 580 million years ago that's about uh, 40 million years before the Cambrian what we see at the beginning of the Cambrian is a, an expansion over about 20 million years of the numbers of kinds of things that we find. We start seeing things that we recognize as belonging to modern day kinds of organisms. We start seeing the Forshelli organisms. We start seeing things that represent animal movements. But that's again over, over about a, tw and, and shells. And that's over about a 20 million year period of time. And we don't have to, uh, to explain it, we don't have to really have, at least in many, in some views, everything evolving all at once. It can be. It is. It is a rapid period of time of relatively rapid rates of new, higher order things emerging, but it's not like one day we have nothing and then one day and the next day we have uh, the whole uh, uh, zoo present. My sense of the Cambrian explosion in an artificial life context is that there are certain bars that artificial intelligence uses, for example, with regards to quite abstract phenomena that they used to say, well, if we get to this point, then we have some indication that artificial intelligence has matured enough. And certainly in my reading with regards to artificial life and the Cambrian explosion, it seems to be a similar level that what, you know, what artificial life developers classically should be moving towards is this idea of the Cambrian explosion being explained through their artificial life model. So that, that's the only feedback I can give with regards to John's point on that. Gerald, what's your thinking on all of this? I'm, I'm thinking a lot of things. It's it's a little difficult to formulate them. Um, the, the you know the eons of time that that was uh, that was present that you know that was a, uh, the domain in which evolution took place. You know, it had its uh, extremely productive periods and its and its less productive periods. But the whole, evolution didn't stop at any one point, and it. Cambrian explosion only really was a form of acceleration. So you know you've got this uh, system that's evolving, and if you can, uh, if you could create a, an artificial life system where you saw a sudden explosion in diversity, would you have proved anybody's point? Uh, well, I think so. I mean, I think you would have dis discovered something about the, the nature of, of these kinds of systems. What kinds of systems exactly? Uh, evolutionary systems, just any system that... that evolutionary um, in the sense of, uh, for example, Tom Ray's uh, Tierra uh, uh, Just creatures. evolutionary in the, in the sense of a, of, a, of a system of emergent complexity uh, that's capable of bootstrapping itself to arbitrary levels of complexity. That's a little hard to define. So from the sense that you can go from uh, a simple proteoid to... Um, RNA to uh, DNA to the, the current um, the current extremely complex molecular machinery that we have um, at, at each turn there, there's 
a point at which the system begins to exhibit a, a new kind of, of emergent behavior that's totally different from the kinds of behavior that it was exhibiting before. Um, and then, you know, eventually you have people building computers and traveling to the moon. Um, and it, it, so I think that's kind of the definition of just emergence, of a, a system that demonstrates emergent behavior uh, that alters the nature of the system itself. The question I would have is, is when are you satisfied? When are you uh, satisfied that something is exhibiting this? Uh, how much would it take? Roy, I hear you wanting to chime in here. Please, please. No, I was just going to say, I think that would, for, for at least looking from an evolutionary point of view, having a system that naturally showed emergence of higher level properties would be very valuable to see that this is, we can demonstrate that systems uh, that evolve almost always, that this would happen, would be very valuable in understanding not just the... Um, Cambrian explosion, but the origins of eukaryotic cells, the emergence of life itself, and many other ecological and evolutionary uh, things. I think it's, I personally think that that's, and I've argued that uh, if, if artificial life shows these emergent properties, that would be a very valuable contribution in itself. It may not have to mimic exactly what happens in the Cambrian, but uh, certainly would show that, that this is something that we would expect to happen. I have another. I have an alternative uh, uh, view of what the Cambrian explosion in artificial life might be, and that is when every school child plays with it. That's the second. I think that's the secondary, if not a primary, aim of biota as a, as a group, or certainly as it has been since I took the editorial responsibility, is to you're right juxtaposition. Firstly, what we're doing in artificial life, and secondly, who is actually using it. But I'm really fascinated by Roy's return to first principles, and I think. Uh, because we have him on the podcast, I'd like to expand on that a little bit. In terms of the interaction of uh, the environment and the actual biology, how, how do you see that in, in simulation terms? And I know your background is with regards to fractal explanations of, of, of life and potentially artificial life. Is that part of the process as you see it? Well, I, I, I see that that is important. I mean, in my current work, for example, um, what we have is evidence from a number of places that prior to the Cambrian uh, that these many seafloors, uh, sea especially those below the level of the tides, were covered with a thin mat of microbes, um, algae and microbes, and um, organisms sort of sat sort of on those, is what they call the Ediacaran biota, and fed on those or just sort of attached to them. Then we start to get into the Cambrian and we start to get into things that churn up the, the, the uh, the sea bottom. And now this biomass is now, instead of being distributed uh, sort of fairly uh, uh, evenly across the seafloor, is in little patches. Organisms then, and this is the models I've been working with, in order to locate food resources that are distant from where they are currently located, have to have morphological ways of doing that. And so what I'm suggesting there is that you've got a change, uh, the biology is causing a change in a physical thing, which is the nature of the seafloor, which in ten feeds back to the biology. In that case, you get the change in the in the uh, nature of the organisms. I think that kind of thing we can play with, with models. Can I ask a question about uh, the the Cambrian explosion itself? Uh, what is actually the uh, the best characterization of what happened? Is it, um, uh, for example, a new kind of collaboration among uh, creatures or something like that? What is the defining feature? Is it just simple uh, increase in diversity, or is there something? Uh, quite special that happened in that period. And it's just a question for the people who know, for the from the people who know. Well, there are, there are a number of things, um, 
And I'm going to follow here along with the work of my colleague Charles Marshall, who's, who's written a really nice summary of this recently in Annual Reviews of Ecology and Systematics. Uh, first of all, there is a uh, tremendous increase in what we call disparity. And disparity is not is how many kinds of things there are in terms of body form. We end we go into we start to find what and that you think about this is um, diversity of body types, and we have an increase in that going on in this period of time. Again, from about 542 to somewhere around 520, something like that. Uh, we have an increase at the same time also in the, just simple diversity, the number of kinds of things that we count, number of species, and so on that we count living. Um, the questions become, why, do we, why is it at 542 and not earlier? Why not later? Um, and why did it take tens of millions of years for it to continue? It, again, it wasn't a quick thing. But it is uh, this major increase... If, again, goes back to uh, early in the history of paleontology, is that below this the Cambrian boundary, uh, we don't find things with shells. We don't find abundant um, uh, multicellular organisms, at least uh, in many places in the world. They were not known until uh, about 40 years ago. Uh, trace fossils, the things that tra track some trails and burrows, are very simple. So it's a, it's a real fundamental change in the entire organization of life. It did you say that uh, multicellular life sort of uh, uh, originated in the Cambrian explosion or not? No, it's before that. The first, okay. first recognizable multicellular life goes back about 580 to a group of things we call the Ediacaran biota. And these are very problematic. Some of them get quite large. They're very flat things that sort of look like air mattresses. Uh, some of them look uh, were certainly uh, attached to the bottom. There was some indication of... of Maybe a few of them could move around, but you want to get in an argument with these people who work on these things. We don't know what the hell they are. Um, some people have suggested they're ancestral to uh, current forms. I think most would accept that. Others have suggested they're a totally independent evolution of multicellular life. Others have suggested they're lichens. I mean, there's been big arguments in the nature of these things. But the up until the beginning of the Cambrian, things that we recognize as belonging to modern groups and we are sure about it don't exist. So before you do, you did actually have uh, uh, like coalitions of cells forming bodies and diversifying their functions? Yes, yes. There's a, there's, again, the Ediacaran biota is now known worldwide. Uh, it was originally found in Australia, uh, in the Ediacaran hills down there. In fact, they've just named a whole period of Earth history, the Ediacaran, after these things. And they are uh, multicellular organisms. I'm going to say organisms because we don't know what their exact affinities are not known. Did they have organs? No discernible. They, they can certainly move. There's no indication of independent organs. I'm interested in the fact that there's no indication of eyes or antennae. Um, but they certainly would have had, uh, they had tissues that made them capable of movement. They may have been of similar construction to a modern, to a jellyfish or various other cnidarians. But uh, again, they're, uh, what exactly they were, uh, it's a little bit dicey. There's some, it may have been ancestral to arthropods, some of them may have been ancestral to annelids. You know, it's, it's, it's still being argued about very heatedly. But they are, they get to be uh, many centimeters across in size and they're very distinctive. Now you work with regards to fractal modeling how does that fit into this, aside from the, the, the movement to uh, separate feeding grounds, for want of a better description? Well, in the modeling itself, I've been using fractal models of the distribution of resources on the landscape to model the, uh, how things get evolved through space. 
But I've also, in a in a separate work, uh, I've been interested in. There's been suggestion going back to Pierre Bach that evolution shows self-organized criticality, and um, which was his explanation for the physics of fractals. And I've modeled uh, the evolutionary process using multifractals, and I don't think uh, self-organized criticality is is a good explanation of what we see. And feeding this back into contemporary artificial life development, I look at Gerald's work currently, particularly as he moves towards energy-based systems and energy-based organs. These ideas of clumps of feeding grounds and forcing the artificial life creatures to move to these feeding grounds and then having to evolve their movement in order to do this. Can you give some discussion to that? In actuality, it was a paper by Raup and Zeilacher back in 1969 in Science where they had a very simple model for computer uh, for an organism feeding on patch and even though I personally don't accept the the, uh, the algorithm they use this was called at one point one of the very first AI models um, and where they had a, a, an organism under under uh, uh, control and back in the I think somewhere in the early in the 70s somebody else did a genetic algorithm model also for these trace fossils um, there have been a couple other models since then um, it's, I haven't put in an evolutionary aspect into it. I've been simply looking at a comparison of how organisms with or without different abilities would function. But certainly uh, there would be, um, uh, you can put that in as a, as, a, as a development of actually have them evolve that ability and that using a GA or something like that. So competitive feeding is one component, but this idea of the environment feeding back in through disasters and other things that require some adaption basically in the in the creatures can you talk on that a little bit you know for example I, you know it would be kind of fun to do something with, uh, I looked a while ago to the Hiera model um, what if the computer you know, have systems where you have uh, things crash on you occasionally resources get more limited get less limited um, there are various things that you can do with the environment that the artificial life lives in that would be, would be very interesting to see we know that um, for example again the very be beginning of the uh, when this whole process starts, 580, there was a major, almost worldwide glaciation. It went to very, very low latitudes, and it's called Snowball Earth. We know that 65 million years ago, an asteroid hit the Earth and wiped, uh, wiped out the dinosaurs and many other forms of life. Uh, continents come together, go apart, climates change on all scales. Um, so there's a lot of dynamics going on in the physical environment that uh, life has to uh, adjust to. Um, and so it, it's that kind of thing where there's, there's an interaction, there's physical environmental changes which life doesn't affect, there are physical environmental changes which life do, does affect quite profoundly, ocean chemistry being a big one. And it, it, if, if I can jump in, that's when I designed the, uh, the AIL system, the Artificial Life Ecosystem Simulator, the, the whole idea was to have different forms of life that have different effects on the environment. You know, you have uh, one life form that generates oxygen and one life form that, that needs oxygen and then, you know, uh, dead life forms increase the nutrient based in the water and, and to try to do these sorts of things. And the limitation really is in the the arbitrariness of the ability of the organisms to respond um, in that it would be beneficial for an algae, for example, to develop or for a class of algae to develop very strong clumping behavior. And, and the difficulty comes in uh, uh, not not putting that into the system, but putting that possibility into the system. 
so what we're talking here about is almost an artificial consciousness in terms of moving from things that are just floating and mysteriously pick up energy to things that are actually actively moving distances in order to get food to evolving into even bigger creatures. Well, what is your thinking on this, Roy, in terms of this idea of consciousness in this process? Well, you have to have it. I mean, again, I don't want to use the word consciousness. I want to think about... Um, an organism has to, again, in, in today's marine environment, and certainly in the marine environment starting in the Cambrian, an organism has to get information about what's out there. You have to know where the resources are, where the predators are. You have to then process that information, then act on it. Um, and that is, that's going to be an important part of what organisms have to have that we have today. And that's what I think one of the things that evolved during this period of time. So once you get environments that have a lot of spatial structure to them, then abilities to have a memory or abilities to have some sort of ability to react, to, to interpret that information becomes very important. So early uh, sensory systems become very important. And is this really the thing that the Cambrian explosion or the Cambrian, whatever you whatever word you wish to attribute to it, is, is part of it's this idea of, of moving from floating along, picking up energy, to actually developing a, a sense of where the, where the food is, a sense of how to get there, how to get there faster, these kind of things. Well, I'd like to think so. Of course, that's what my NSF proposal I have in right now is asking for me the money to work on. But I, I think that's, that's part of it. I, it, it. It is a tremendously complex period of time. There's lots of changes happening in the course of all sorts of organ in all sorts of areas of the biotic world at this period of time. I think this is one of them: is is taking biomass and making it, uh, uh, putting it into discrete units. Um, you start getting carcasses. You start getting things that are really meaty. Uh, so one of my colleagues puts it a long time ago: you get a real change in the nature of seafood. Um, you get things that are, uh, you get starting things at the bottom that are really worthwhile eating and going after. And so those kinds of things are happening at this period of time. You start getting fecal pellets. Um, and so this is all part of the, again, a, there are a lot of feedback mechanisms. And I think most of my colleagues would agree that this is a period of time where there's a lot of, of uh, it's not a single causality. I mean, people have come up with one, but that what you've got uh, is a whole th set of things that are interacting with each other producing this emergent system. Now in terms of computational model, and this comes from what Dave Kerr has said and also from what John Daigle has said, do we start with the amino acids or do we start with something that's higher level? And what's your thinking on that, Roy? I think we start higher level. I think if you want to do with the amino acid stuff, that's, that's you know, you go back to the origins of life, which is a whole other set of issue. When does the first self-replicating organism start? Uh, and again, is uh, some of the things we see in the bacterial world, which is most of Earth's history, um, bacteria and archaean, um, what is going on with that? We're dealing here where we, I think we can uh, abstract some of that for at least here in the artificial life issue and say, well, uh, what is going on with those aspects? Now, some of this is the, the and my colleague, uh, my colleagues would think about, some of my colleagues think about in terms of a, um, you do have developmental basis of some of these changes. Changes in uh, the, the system that underlies how we make bilaterally symmetrical organisms, the bilaterians. And some of this may very well be going on. And how much of this is driven by uh, the interaction of the developmental systems with the interaction of the environment is a whole other area. And I think that's, that's going to be tough to code. But I think, there, again, there are people in, in uh, genetics and there are people in um, 
uh, ecology and evolution who have been do actually doing numerical models of this kind of thing. Though they're not, I don't know how much contact they have with the artificial life and artificial intelligence communities. So what you're saying almost is that there is really no first principles to start from in some regard, and artificial life developers could approach it from a number of different angles in order to uh, get some of the properties that we see occurring in, in the Cambrian period. I think no, again, this is... Uh, I suspect that no one all-purpose model is going to do it. I think you're going to have to have models that make a certain assumptions and uh, abstractions, but again, that's how, how we do it anyway. I mean, that's I mean, anytime you do a computer model, any kind of modeling, you make abstractions about, about lower-level properties to try to hone in on what's going on at upper levels. And then you can uh, work at it from there. Uh, climate models are a beautiful example of that. You don't model long-term climate change by modeling today's weather. This is true, but um, like if you take protein folding, for example, which is, is some research that I'm involved in right now, um, you know, th there's a lot of abstractions that are made, and uh, and one of the assumptions that gets made when you deal with one of these systems is that it, it only the protein itself has has an effect, or things that are actually in contact with it, and as it, in how the protein folds, and then some experimental data shows that this is essentially not true, right? That, that there are other things that can, can affect this at a distance. Um, other proteins called helper proteins that can, that can determine how the protein folds. So when you, when you abstract, I, I think that you have to be very careful in, in, um, in number one, recognizing uh, the abstractions, but number two, you know, at, at what point do you lose the fundamental properties of the system that make it function the way that it does. Um, and that's my, cons my concern with um, all of the abstractions that, that certainly that I've developed and, and most of the ones that I've seen from other people is that they, I think they lose the property. They lose the thing, uh, whatever the intangible is that makes the system emerge. What's your thinking on this, Gerald? It's pretty, uh, it's pretty nihilistic. I mean, uh, it, it, uh, if if you uh, give up that quickly, I mean, you know, come on. Well, no, I certainly haven't <laughs> given up. I'm still, I, I just think that, that, that it's... Let me just defend what I meant there. I mean, yeah, I, I would advocate giving up, uh, coming up with an, uh, an A-Life simulation that uh, you professed um, sufficiently explains the Cambrian explosion. It's just not going to happen. Not, not in any number of lifetimes, because I don't think we can get the mapping straight. You know, there's nothing, there's, there will never be a convincing enough mapping to the, what happened in actual space in, in huge amounts of actual time. There's just, you know, that's an algorithm's run in, in, in that time, and it took a long time to execute. I don't think we're going to be able to match it. So, given that, I mean, you might not prove the, uh, the, the um, you might not explain the Cambrian explosion, but you can uh, hack away at different aspects of evolution from the bottom end, like what Tom Ray did with his uh, sort of core wars creatures, uh, up into something that sort of vaguely resembles the 3D world like I'm playing around with, uh, onto a sort of evolutionary systems like Tom uh, was working on. Uh, he doesn't call it evolutionary, but it was sort of like an ecosystem with survival and death. And, uh, you know, with uh, not physical bodies represented, but with, uh, I guess, conceptual creatures that were moving around. So different levels, we're all hacking at the same thing. True, true. I, and I don't mean to be nihilistic. I just, this is a, a problem that I'm struggling with, actually, conceptually. So it's just what, what is what? The, the core property 
what what are the core properties of a system that is truly emergent? Yeah, what what level do you think has to be abstracted to model the Cambrian explosion? Does it have to be a cellular level, or could it be an organism level where each organism is the building block, or each cell is the building block? Uh, again, I guess I, I would go for a multi-tiered approach. Uh, again, there are issues that come up on um, if we if we postulate sort of as a, a boundary, how do we generate uh, complex systems of genes that interact with each other? Then certainly that's a different, that's an important issue and needs to be addressed at one level. On the other hand, if we say, well, for example, if we don't look at swimming organisms, what are the, the physics involved that make an organism have one shape or another? What do you think the minimum level would have to be, if it was possible? If it was possible. Um, I honestly, I, I would, I, I, that, I really don't know. I think the minimum level is probably on the level of gene expression. Um, and the, uh, and the whole, uh, there's this whole field of evo-devo, what they call evolution and development, which has been looking at the issues of gene expression and the timing and the uh, uh, areas of gene expression. And I think that's part, a lot of, of, of the interesting stuff come, coming out of that nowadays, where we, we see some fundamental similarities in gene expression across vertebrates to nematodes to insects uh, you can take a gene from uh, a mouse limb put it into a, an, a, an insect and it'll grow a limb I mean there are some tremendous underlying uh, functional similarities in gene expression in organisms I think that's the kind of level that's going to be that really needs to be looked at these days I think if you had a system that uh, let's take um, a system that we all know and and probably all love creatures right um, you have these blocky things and then they're walking around. You take that exact same system um, and you now allow for the creatures to interact with each other in the sense that, that they have to find energy and they have to try to bump each other out of the way. Okay. If without you anticipating it occurring, you suddenly saw two creatures attack a third creature and consume its energy without you anticipating that that would occur, um, or, or in any way uh, uh, encoding that, um, then whatever abstraction you're using for genetics is working. And I, and I think at that point you have explained everything, you, or, or not explained everything, but you have a model that is truly emerging. And that, that I disagree. New things. Okay. I, I, I disagree because uh, the, the way you've described it, I was listening to it very carefully, and it, you've actually, I think, sort of described what I've been doing inadvertently. <laughs> and I don't believe it does prove, uh, you know, I don't believe you've got, I mean, what I've been doing is not that important, you know, not that uh, significant in terms of its um, explanation of how evolution actually happened in real life. It is uh, an explanation, or it is a, an exploration of an evolution. But that's uh, that's as, as significant as it gets. But if you if you run it and you and you see, um, you know, the, the board suddenly becomes populated with predators, right? You have you have no predators. The board is suddenly populated with predators. You'll go look at your code and you'll see how you enabled that, you know. Yeah. And I think um, it'll be it'll be quite explicit. And if it's implicit, uh, I have my doubts that that'll happen. Well, and I, and I think that's the point: is that, is that it, it, it can't it can't be explicit. The, the 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 physical universe has to be modeled sufficiently well that 
gene, the changes on the gene level um, have real effects on how the how the creature interacts with the universe. It has real effects. Sorry, you've got to also simulate many, many millions of years. Perhaps, perhaps not. Because um, I'm not looking, we don't need to model the entire Cambrian explosion. We just have to look for minimum set systems that exhibit phase changes or that exhibit, you know, the sudden proliferation of things that were not there before. Let's put this question to Roy, because I think what we haven't talked about here is the time component, although it's been mentioned repeatedly. How critical is the time component, and how can that be simulated in, in, with real-world computing? What's your thinking on this, Roy? Well, again, one of the things that's become clear is, or at least has been suggested by a number of people, is that the, critic, uh, the important innovations uh, that we see in the Cambrian may not have all happened all at once. They've, they were sort of uh, uh, added to over time. And that each innovation also may have also created the uh, context for, for later innovations to have occurred. Uh, so that's the time is sort of uh, there's a uh, again other feedback loops going on here that tell me that makes something else possible that comes along first for each one. Um, so I would say that that we we don't have to worry. I mean, the major thing to me is not having to worry about having everything happen. Well, the entire explosion happen in, in in a in a few cycles of computer time. You can get something where, in fact, even an innovation may occur somewhere in the system early on uh, and then not become widespread until much, much later. And that's, again, something that's been suggested. We actually may see a new form of life appear but or a new way of doing things appear, but it may not become dominant until much later on when the, when the setting is right for that to happen. So I think you can, you can spread, out, spread this out. Gerald and John were talking about very major definable points and what Roy was saying was that there can be a thing a series of things that aren't necessarily seen as major points that actually contribute to that and that has actually spread out over a far longer period of time than you know the kind of 2001 moment where the, the monkey gets the bone and whacks the other one over the head I mean this kind of pr process. Good thing about a computer is you can make it run really fast and kind of accelerate time so you might miss all those neat things that happen but I think that's one of the advantages of using a computer model is you don't have to wait a million years yeah, that's true you could you could, I mean if you saw a, a proliferation across the board um, of a new thing uh, and the board being abstracted you see this new thing across your universe then you, you can always of course go backwards and go you know, what happened yeah, if you've recorded what? everything I don't want to put words into Roy's comment, but is it an idea of simple things, Roy, that actually it goes on over time that creates larger? Is there an idea of simplicity in this, or unobservability even? I think there's an idea of emergence. And I'll you know, just follow up someone who said this, but one of the things that's really important to think about here is what you can do with a computer is uh, what Steve Gould in his wonderful life book says you can't do with life is run the tape again. Uh, we've had life on Earth has evolved once, and Gould has talked about running the tape back and then running it forward and seeing if things would turn out the way again. He spoke very strongly about the idea of, gee, if certain things hadn't happened exactly when they did, then other things wouldn't happen later. Idea of contingency. With computer code, we can actually run the tape again. I don't like the metaphor of a tape, but that's another story. Um, 
I think it's more more of an improv theater. But you run you run the system forward again. You see if the same kinds of things happen, especially if you've got systems that are not totally um, deterministic in their setup. And that's that. I mean, is one of the things that, that's valuable about the whole uh, AI uh, approach to this type of thing is. Uh, artificial life, a, a life approach is to see what happens when you do it multiple times. Is the same kind of systems emerge? Uh, what is the what are the things that are predictable? What kinds of things are not predictable? Um, and I think a lot about uh, life on other planets, and there's a lot of interest in that. And I think, for example, you would find things like predators. You'd find things like filter feeders. You'd find many of the ecological structures. Things may look different. But physics and chemistry are the same from place to place to place and from time to time to time. And I think there's a predictability that comes up in the history of life, and I think we can play with that. Do you think chemistry is as fundamental as physics is with regards to life on other planets? Yes. So you think we would, we would find similar kind of carbon-based life? Uh, my understanding is carbon is such a unique molecule. And water is such a unique molecule in the way it behaves that I would be very shocked if life wasn't carbon-based elsewhere in the universe. Well, then. <laughs> yeah, be, we've been surprised before. <laughs> yes, yes. I was actually thinking about that. that some people think there's a possibility that there could be life on uh, on planets like on uh, on Titan. Actually, is one place. Uh, it's methane-based, and I guess that would also be uh, carbon as well. That's right. Oh, very good though. I mean, car carbon just has such a, a tremendous variety of chemistry that's available to it that is not available to any other, you know, closest thing is silicon. And, but even then. So carbon was our lucky break. Yeah, but carbon is very common in the universe. So we've got to find the analog of carbon in, yeah. in the artificial environment. And oxygen and water. Nitrogen. Here we go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we just need to model the universe and run it from from the first point. <laughs> <laughs> is complex life inevitable? Is is intelligence inevitable? And uh, I I think in the long term, yes. Given given you run the experiment enough times. The idea of complex life and of intelligence and of these kind of things. It could be a multiplicity of, of possibilities as opposed to what we see currently, and I think this is the, the fascinating thing with artificial life development, is that you can actually test possible world theories as well. What's your own thinking with regards to this, Roy? In terms of testing possible worlds? Yeah, well, we're talking very explicitly here with regards to what occurred on this planet in terms of testable things currently. But I think a, a component of artificial life could look at possibilities, and this is something that we've touched on now. Right. Well, just give an example, um, and I, I'm trying to struggling to remember the gentleman's name. There was a fellow who worked on on fish uh, as an artificial life system, and it'll come to me later on. Um, and what he did is he had a model of fish uh, evolving in a, uh, and he, he, he they learned how to swim. But he used the particular physical properties of water that uh, we would have to change things. Uh, if you change, for example, you can model the evolution of flight, but you have it in a different atmosphere. If you model the um, uh, changes in uh, gravity, for example, can you play with physics? I think playing with physics is going to be a lot of fun in terms of what kinds of, of, of forms evolve when you have to slightly change the physical environment a little bit. That may give us a clue to what's going on on other planets. What's your thinking on this, Gerald? 
Well, I don't know. I, I yeah, good. I mean, I have in uh, in the the version of intelligent design that's uh, on uh, on the web right now. I have uh, physics uh, controls, so you can play around with the physics all you want. It it it's funny because when I when I hear that, then I think, uh, oh, then I've got the solution for that as well. But it's just not as significant as all that, you know. <laughs> Even when you can play with the physics, you're still not there. <laughs> well, what, what can you tell me what you mean by not there yet? Um, explaining, you know, biological evolution. Really, I mean, what I've what I've been doing is I've been focusing very carefully on sort of squeezing the complexity down so that I can observe a, the tiniest little bit of evolution in a, in a short amount of time. So it's just been, you know, I concocted a system that squeezed it right down. It's like putting it under a microso microscope. And uh, the main thing that's in it is is something that I actually uh, got from Buckminster Fuller, the concept of precession. Uh, he he took that into a whole physical, uh, sorry, philosophical context. Precession is like when you have a spinning top, and you spin it on the table. It spins in more ways more ways than one. So the 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 other ways that it spins is the precession. It's sort of like the unintended consequences or the, the orthogonal things. Is it eigenvalues fundamentally, Gerald? Is it the idea of eigenvalues of, of wave functions? I'm not sure. I, I'm not. I'm not familiar with that. Maybe you can explain uh, sometime. But um, like what what I did in Darwin at home is I created uh, uh, creatures that that actually consist. They are actual coalitions of idiots. You know, each one of them has no clue what it could possibly do to improve its lot. Because all it can do is is uh, do something at a different time, and it has no clue whether that will help or not. And even if you were deciding watching something, you wouldn't know either. So there's a sort of orthogonality there. There's sort of a you know a, a perpendicular uh, interest there. So the the mutation has nothing to do with the ability to have success. There's no there's no link to be made, and that's that's the kind of precession that I think uh, makes up the parts of evolution. Well, of course, you know. Again, as a paleontologist, of course, we, we tend to look at things on the multimillionaire scales, and we don't see things down at the fine scales. But there is this, uh, in, uh, going back now uh, some 35 years, to the idea of punctuated equilibrium that uh, Niles Eldridge and, Tom, and Steve Gould came up with. There is a question of whether, on the large-scale evolutionary processes, things going on down at the level of the species or below actually matter. And in the sense that... Um, we may not be able to predict from whether a particular organism uh, is fit as an individual, whether its species will survive, and whether, uh, as a, as the, whether based on the species, whether that group will survive. That these are very different hierarchical levels of evolution, and they don't necessarily um, extrapolate from one to the other. For folk new to artificial life and listening to this podcast, you've mentioned Gould a few times, Roy. What do you think is, I don't want to say one, but maybe multiple uh, Gould books that are, that are good reading for artificial life developers? Well, the one, of course, that has had the most influence, uh, and this is from when I learned from the, the Digital Burgess Conference I went to, was uh, Wonderful Life had a lot of influence uh, on how people thought about things. I think it was actually the, the um, uh, inspiration for the Digital Burgess in the first place. Uh, any of his books of, of collected essays are, are very good reading. Now, not everybody agrees with everything uh, Gould said, and I certainly count myself among that. I think he misinterpreted things in many cases. He's got a massive tome that he, uh, on evolutionary theory, that came out posthumously right before he died, and it is 
if you want to, as a colleague of mine put it, if you want to know what he sounded like when he was speaking, that you read that book. Uh, there is also, you need to also look at the work of Dawkins because he was Gould's intellectual great um, uh, uh, combatant. I mean, I think I got along on a personal level, but they certainly disagreed with each other intellectually. Uh, and because Dawkins very much believed that everything arose from lower levels, and, or believes everything arose from lower levels and, and purely uh, extrapolation from, uh, from lower levels on, and Gould strongly believed that no, you had these hierarchical breaks. And this is an idea I've never been able to grasp, actually, is what the difference is. Between? Between Gould and Dawkins. Well, there's a lot of description of the differences in, in Dawkins' books, at least. <laughs> he says at one point, uh, he, he says at one point, you know, the, it, it's, uh, it's almost unfortunate that Gould was so good at writing. Yes, it's a favourite Dawkins quote of mine too, Gerald. Um, <laughs> speaking of which, I, I, I feel that there has been so much information in this podcast and, and we could probably go on for days following through the, these various channels, but unfortunately the, the podcast has a finite lifespan. Any concluding thoughts, Roy? I am going to push very hard for continuing interactions among artificial life, artificial intelligence people, and the paleontological and evolutionary and ecological communities. Again, we there are a lot of people in uh, ecology and evolution who've been doing a lot of computer models. Uh, people in paleontology do uh, do a lot of computer models, and they would benefit from working with people who are very sophisticated in their how how to put models together and how to look at things. And I think again, people in the uh, artificial life and the intelligence communities would benefit from sort of the empirical understanding, the empirical basis of what our field is and what we've already done. And can you talk a bit about the uh, paleobiological database? and the current situation with that. Okay, I'd love to. Um, the Paleobiology Database, PDBB, is a community-wide effort that's been carried on for about five, six years now, originally funded by an NSF Biocomplexity Grant. It is by far uh, the largest database on the history of life. You want to know a particular fossil, you want to know where it's found, you want to know what kind of rock it was in, you want to know its time range, etc. Cetera, et cetera. You go to uh, pbdb.org and you can look it up there. Uh, it is... Uh, has hundreds of thousands of fossil record occurrences in it, tens of thousands of genera are in it right now. Unfortunately, for a whole host of reasons that are both because the NSF funding for paleontology has gone down to virtually nothing, it was less than a million dollars in the last six-month cycle, but also because for various political reasons, funding for this is now uh, pretty close to evaporated. They got rejected on the last funding cycle, and the future of the database and all the work that's been put into it is, is very much in question at the moment. Is this political in terms of various non-evolutionary arguments? Uh, I, no, I don't think so. At least I hope not. I mean, there are always suspicions in the back of our mind about how big uh, support of science is in, from, from the administration as a whole. But I do know that uh, in this particular case, for paleontology as a whole, no. This is internal politics of various kinds that get fought among. We're not. We're sort of. At, we're getting hind tit here in, in paleontology in terms of funding for science. Uh, we are, you know, obviously in terms of public attraction. We're really well, well loved by the public. If you look at, you know, uh, pop, popular press, we're in there as often as astronomy is probably, and except for medicine, we're probably the most popular science. But in terms of support by government funding, we're very, very low down on the totem pole. Mixing my metaphors here. So is it going to be the case that you'll be selling dinosaur toys that that fund this in the future? Is there going to be movement into commerce? What's your thinking in terms of how funding is going to be maintained for this kind of project? 
This has been a very, very active source of discussion. I'm on the advisory board of the Paleobiology Database. Uh, we're looking for money right now pretty much anywhere we can find it. Um, the uh, Unfortunately, for example, the natural place, for example, would be the petroleum industry, which has lots of money, but they're not interested in funding anything that's not going to be, well, uh, directly uh, helping their enterprise of finding more oil. Um, and in terms of popularity, I, you know, um, would be nice if every dinosaur toy came with 10 cents donated to, the, to support paleontological research. But we're looking for, we hope that maybe perhaps somewhere in the high-tech industry, uh, people who are interested in this kind of thing would be able to support us too. Certainly, having, having used the database, it lends itself very much to things like Google Maps. And similarly, I think Hollywood, that uses regularly dinosaurs for various things, could, uh, could, could kick in some cash with regards to it as well. It is a phenomenal database. I thoroughly encourage everyone listening to this podcast to at least look at their, in their neck of the woods with regards to what walked and crawled and swum prior to them living there. I mean, it's just a, a fascinating database. And again, it's a result of a lot of work that's been put into it by uh, people running it, the people organizing it, and by the, by the paleontological community as a whole. And it contains, for example, the largest dinosaur taxonomic database that I know of. Certainly, and it's publicly accessible, which is the, another beautiful part of it. But I think, unfortunately, this probably shares far too many parallels for the artificial life community as well in terms of, um, you know, the finding dynamic ways to find funding. John, any final thoughts? No, not, not uh, this, is, this has been fascinating. It's a lot to think about. Um... I, I think it's a wonderful opportunity to have someone uh, as um, knowledgeable as Roy participate in these podcasts. And I'm trying to get more scientists involved because, as Roy has summarized, I think it's critical for uh, contemporary artificial life developers to have interactions with contemporary science. I would have one question for Roy, which would be, you would, you would suggest that artificial life uh, developers um, get involved with uh, more paleontologists, or uh, um, what avenues would you suggest that um, you know, people pursue in order to make these, these kinds of connections? Well, I, for one, would love to be invited to, to some meetings. Um, again, I found the Digital Burgess meeting when I went to it really fascinating to get a chance to meet meet all the people like Bruce Damer and Steve Grant and so on. It was really quite wonderful and really got me thinking about what you folks have been doing. I actually, a few years after that, had a meeting in Berkeley that I organized where I invited Artificial Life people to come present their stuff. So I think setting up meetings, finding out who in your local area might be a, is a paleontologist and might be interested in these things. Uh, there is a uh, listserv, uh, PaleoNet it's called, and if anybody interested in particular persons, um, uh, you can put a call out through there. I'm always useful to help find somebody who might be interested in these issues. The purpose of these podcasts in many regards is to get people from all over the world who do artificial life-related development who may not attend the conferences regularly or really in terms of the diversity that you saw in the biota conferences, the digital Burgess and biota conferences, there hasn't really been any thrust in terms of maintaining that kind of diversity through the, the conferences that have, have come past it, although the artificial life conferences uh, tend to be tend to involve a number of people from a number of different disciplines. But what we're trying to do through this podcast is get people talking again uh, and people from uh, a wide variety of locations and fields that may not attend any of the, the conferences that come up. Dave, any final questions? Any final thoughts? No final questions. I think uh, I'm pretty optimistic. I think one day we'll be able to simulate at least the most fundamental 
principles of the Cambrian explosion and evolution. Well, some concluding business. The last podcast made references, um, both I and Bruce Damon made references to Steve Grand, and Roy's mentioned him as well. I have reconnected with Steve Grand, and I hope to do a biota.org interview with him, which should be available in the feed next week, or maybe the week following. I've also invited Steve to be a part of these conversations, because I think certainly the issues discussed in the last podcast all hinged on Steve Grant's creatures versus Carl Sims' creatures. We probably should have given that distinction when uh, John made it. In addition, I've had quite a bit of correspondence with regards to the ways to communicate the biota message, and this is something I want to pass back to the the group that's assembled here as well. Uh, I've had feedback with regards to setting up a weblog. I know John mentioned the Second Life store. I got an email today from Ken Stauffer, who uh, was featured in a a previous biota.org interview with regards to getting together a documentary, uh, which I think is footage, music, and people speaking over it as opposed to a roving international camera crew. And my personal view, the easiest thing for me to produce is a series of t-shirts with a biota message on it. However, I'm not interested currently in in doing anything that makes any uh, profit or any money because I'm not sure that the organisation is set up currently to be accepting money, so they will be effectively free t-shirts as far as money made from them. But John, um, can you talk a little bit more about your idea on the Second Life store? Well, I was was, uh, doing some research for work concerning Second Life, and one of the things that I found is that there's an entire island of A-Life developers in Second Life. There's, there's, a, whole, there's a whole island that's, that's dedicated to people who are using the existing physics engine um, to, to try and, and do experiments in artificial life. And I, I thought that was interesting and, and maybe something we'd, we'd want to get involved in. And I was really thinking more of an office, actually. <laughs> You know, if we're interested in virtualization, we should have a, a virtual office space with, uh, you know, posters and a, and a, a link for people to, to buy or donate or or, uh, or download software and just it, just a different way to interact um, with um, maybe with kids who are who are interested in in building things and using scripting languages. Was um, my thinking? It's just a, it's more of a community outreach, and then also to try and reach the community that's already there and doing things that, that we don't know. Bruce Damer is going to Linden Labs next week, and I'll certainly add that as a, a dot point on his, his to-communicate list. I think he's given a presentation and then talking to various development teams at Linden Labs. Um, Dave, you mentioned earlier, I think I've had a number of requests for a, a biota.org weblog, but what, what was your thinking on the weblog, Dave? Well, I kind of thought it'd be kind of like that site, HuffingtonPost.com, not to promote that or anything because it's quite controversial but they have a a list of blogs and it's almost like a, a news news site where if you did that on biota you could have people and the latest entries would be at the top of the page and it scrolled down in the list of data added and it'd just be an outlet for a life developers to get the message out in one place Certainly. There are, I think, there are four artificial life web blogs that I track actively, and some of them have quite controversial posts and particularly uh, critiques of conferences and things like that. And we certainly could put that on the, the front of the Biota site. As it is currently, there is a link section that links to some of those, although I'll, I'll be adding more shortly. 
Um, in terms of the broader communication aims of Biota, Gerald touched on it briefly with regards to school children playing with artificial life simulations and actively uh, doing it. Well, what is the group's thinking on this kind of outreach? Again, if it's set up properly, it can be used. We have, I'm involved with a program that puts our graduate students into Chicago public schools. And one of them last year actually used a very simple uh, artificial ecology program in a uh, school and uh, got a, kids got quite a lot out of it. And actually one of the people I work with uh, now on this project is doing some artificial ecologies also uh, that are going to be used in classrooms. So I think the potential is certainly there. If I might add, my, my uh, son Mitchell, who's 13 years old, is, a, is an avid uh, scripter in Second Life in the, in the teen world. And uh, he's been been scripting up things like uh, fireworks, and uh, and he created a bubble gun, and uh, and all sorts of interesting artifacts of uh, second life uh, nature. And uh, so I'm getting a clue into how that's being that's uh, scripted by uh, by having to help him every once in a while. So I'm getting an idea of how to uh, generate scripts that could maybe be imported directly into uh, second life. That would be really funny. Is anyone on the conversation currently familiar with the, aside from John, with the Second Life, Artificial Life Ireland? I didn't even know about it. Have you explored it, John? Have you talked to people there and things like that? No, I just, um, you know, I was looking to buy some real estate, um, and, and it was just on the island page. Somebody said, there's an island of people developing a life, and I thought, Wow, there it is. <laughs> and uh, when I when I have when I have a moment, I'm definitely going to go check that out. Um, right, I'm, I'm shopping for gallery space, but when <laughs> when I can get past that, I'll, I'd love to check it out. I'm sure they're doing interesting things. It's a you know any scripting language you can do anything. I think, uh, and just thus negating my first point on this podcast. So if you want to be the Biota ambassador to Second Life, John. I don't think you'll have any objections unless folks listening to this podcast feel uh, feel that they are, are more involved in Second Life or, or have feedback to give. By all means, Tom at NobleApe.com, email me. I'm, I'm fascinated by this as, as being a possibility. My own aims with regards to biota.org are, are, are communicative, but also they just things like putting these podcasts together take a certain degree of time so I'm always interested in delegating roles of evangelism and ambassadorialship if that is even a term um, in, in, you know, in communicating the messages of Biota uh, to friends, family, a broader audience basically uh, and I think all that is, is very very positive in terms of producing links back to the site so from the weblogs uh, and the Second Life store, the idea of the documentary caught me as being something that was similar to some feedback I've had from the Artificial Life Journal. The Artificial Life Journal, obviously, uh, Mark Bedeau, who's been interviewed in the podcast, uh, is, is the chief editor of the journal. They are now doing uh, two-color images on the front of the journal of actual artificial life environments. This caught me... I, I, read my journal religiously as it comes in, thumb through it a, a few times. But this caught me as very striking because there are obviously a wide variety of artificial life developers that are more on the aesthetic, kind of artistic end, uh, and I think that lends itself very well to the, the front cover of the journal. I'm getting more information back from Mark Boudot. He does have some 
criteria in terms of it being both artistic and scientific, but I'm trying to get more information back. And another interesting point was that Richard Dawkins is now on the uh, editorial board. He may have returned to the editorial board. I'm not sure if he was on previously, but he certainly wasn't on last year, and he's now on this year. I have made a, a few efforts to get Richard Dawkins in the biota.org interview stream and potentially even part of a, a contributing conversation. He does seem to be doing some podcasts currently, so I'll try again with Mark Perdoe's assistance to get Richard Dawkins to participate in this. The other person of the three, Steve Grand, Richard Dawkins, was Daniel Dennett. I have made efforts to get Daniel Dennett on this podcast as well. I think particularly with ideas of, of virtual consciousness and these kind of questions, it would be wonderful to have a, a jamming session uh, with Daniel Dennett. Um, no word on that, although uh, Dick Gordon, uh, the, the second interview in the interview stream and a regular contributor in email form, uh, has, has some connection with Daniel Dennett and has been progressively emailing him to listen into these podcasts. For, for those assembled in the conversation, are there any other scientists of, of particular note or uh, maybe even not known that uh, they think would be pertinent to having these podcasts? Uh, I have to think about it. I, there are people working on agent models I think it would be very worthwhile uh, talking to. Um, Kaufman, Stuart Kaufman, comes to mind. That's a person worth having in his NK models and things like that. Uh, uh, by the way, I want to mention that Steve Grant's creation book is just great. I really, it was very influential in my own thinking. Certainly. There's so much to talk about with Steve Grant. It'll be wonderful to have the opportunity to chat with him in real time. It may be a particularly long podcast, <laughs> I'm suspecting. John, who would you like to see in, in the scientific community uh, involved in these podcast series? Uh, I, would, I would definitely second um, Stuart Kaufman, um, without a doubt. Um, possibly um, Melanie Mitchell, um, who's a, a computer scientist at uh, Portland State and does a lot of work with um, uh, just emergent systems, but um, also analogical thinking, um, which is a, a very different approach to artificial intelligence. And I think that she worked with Douglas Hofstadter, and that whole group's a very interesting group of people. Okay. Dave, is there anyone you can think of that you'd like to see? Uh, yeah. The guy who made Neat. I think his name's Kenneth O'Stanley. Yeah, he, he's, he's someone who's been interviewed, and I've had quite a bit of uh, correspondence with Ken Stanley. Um, I think he's someone we could bring in easily. He is phenomenal in terms of the, the people that are getting involved with Neat currently, and I've said in previous podcasts, even after the interview, uh, that the explosion of interest and really it is an explosion of interest in NEAT and the people that are using it and also the people that you wouldn't suspect that are using it in industry uh, companies like EA all percolating through and I think it's a fascinating combination of, of both uh, neural networks and, and kind of complex system evolution uh, in some regard. Gerald? Carl Sims please, Carl Sims now, part of this, part of putting these names out on the podcast is because these podcasts go to, on average, about 150 to 200 folks. And I'm hoping that the folks listening to this podcast have some connection with some of the names mentioned in the podcast. One that I'm going to throw in, which isn't even really a name, it's another podcast, is the Talking Robots AI uh, podcast that Gerald's made references to Lux Steel uh, in a previous podcast. But they are now including the Biota.org podcast in their link to the front of their, their, their page. They have interviewed uh, half a dozen people that 
that I would love to get on the podcast, and I'm currently uh, in, in communication um, with with their podcast in terms of putting me in contact with those people and maybe even doing uh, some paired podcasts. There seem to be a lot of shared components then in terms of AI and robotics and what we're talking about in artificial life too. So that's a, a great podcast that I'm hoping to utilise in terms of some exchange of, uh, of conversation folk. So Gerald, I've looked at your site recently and uh, you, you've changed the planetary model slightly. Can you, can you give a final plug to what you're doing currently? Well, <clears throat> the last couple of days I've been working like a fiend on it, actually. I've got uh, now the um, Elastic Interval Creatures uh, actually on top of the, the surface of the, of the, the sphere. And, uh, and so the, the, all of the physics and everything is working in a spherical fashion. And uh, now I'm, I'm ready to uh, get them moving with muscles and then include the whole system of cell programming so that the muscles can switch functions and turn into eyes and, and ears and fat and brains and whatever else. Uh, and the whole thing is, of course, a really uh, abstract analog, but uh, that also makes it sort of feasible. Dave, what, what's going on with naturally intelligent currently? Exactly like what I'm doing. I've been working on a sequel to AI Planet, and just recently I've been building a gigantic sphere, which uses a really complicated physics system called Newton, but it's not just a standard sphere, as you know, it's like an artificial planet, but the whole thing can morph and change and retain physical properties. But the, the really cool thing about it is, in my old AI Planet, it was a a 2D plane wrapped around a sphere which gave the poles a completely garbagey look but I've resolved that and I've made a sphere with almost equilateral triangles around the whole thing and it can be subdivided as many times as you wish that's exactly what I'm doing as well yeah. and I have all the triangles linked so you can water flows from each one to the next <laughs> yep Every time, every time I have both of you on the podcast, I always try to promote some kind of collaboration. So I will again attempt to promote some kind of collaboration to eliminate wheels being reinvented. John, has, has your nihilism lifted? Are you still feeling the same way you felt when you started this podcast with regards to artificial life? Definitely not nihilistic. I, I, think, <laughs> I was joking. I think we're going to discover... I think we'll discuss. I'm, I'm in the search for the holy grail, the minimum set. What is the what is the minimum system that exhibits true emergent properties? And I don't think that that's a failed quest. I, I don't think that, that we can look at that and say we'll never find it. I think we can. I think we know that that it exists. We know that such a minimum set is there, and uh, and therefore we can find it. It's just a matter of you know continuing to to, to play. Roy. What exciting new things are you working on currently? Well, I'm hoping to uh, have a, working with a student of mine, we're trying to ground truth with real organisms, uh, the computer models I've been developing, uh, on how organisms respond to heterogeneity in the environment. Uh, that's one aspect. Uh, I've got various things I'm working on, on trying to, to uh, see if the fossil record is actually a, a real accurate record of what, what we find is an accurate record of what actually existed. As involving preservation over time, um, those are those are the two main things why I'm looking at right now. Um, but we're, we're continuing to work on developing the uh, computer model, trying to put in some more uh, realistic things like ha uh, involving foraging 
forge there's a whole area of what's called forging theory, and I'm trying to put that into uh, my models to have it arise from the models. Can you expand a little on forging? Well, there's a whole I, uh, there's a whole area of ecology called optimal forging theory, which says when an organism uh, should leave the resource patch that it's in and go look at another one. And it does this in terms of uh, the organism's knowledge of the environment, the cost of uh, continuing to feed where it is, the cost of going on to find new food, the cost of taking the food it has and ingesting it, and so on. And it's a very active area of research, uh, but mostly it's been done with uh, things like squirrels or uh, moose. Uh, and really hasn't been done with uh, marine organisms, and certainly applying it to the fossil record has been done with a few beasts, but um, most of the case, uh, no. I'm trying to explain these things that are called trace fossils, the preserved remains of animal movement, using optimal foraging theory. I have to thank you very much for being on this podcast, Roy, and I would like to invite you back to future podcasts. Your, your, your input has been critical, and I think if, if we've reacted dumbfounded in any way, it's only because... It, and what we are doing, what you are saying, makes so much sense, but also pushes us to new boundaries. So thank you very much for being a part of this podcast. You're welcome. I've enjoyed it. And thanks to uh, Gerald and John and Dave for participating. No doubt you'll be in future podcasts as well. No problem. This was a blast. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks, Tom. Mm-hmm.